Go ahead and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. That's where we'll be at this morning. John, chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. And you know, I think how wonderful it is that they built a boat to illustrate my sermon for me up on stage here. They got into a boat, perhaps like this one, we don't know exactly, but uh, I mean, this looks awesome. And, and again, just to reiterate what you heard already from Jill and Bethany, it was an awesome week at VBS. And um, yeah, I will say this, it was great seeing the highlight video, the recap video. However, I will say this, you might have seen in there, there was a moment of them throwing a water balloon to me, and I dropped it. Let me tell you, that was not reflective of the week. I caught most of them, and they just probably deleted that footage. But nonetheless, you can see why my career as a wide receiver never really took off. Um, it, was, it was awesome. Thanks, Denny, for putting that video together, and uh, to so many of you who served, and especially thanks to Jill and Bethany. Um, when you see them this morning, they're around. You saw them earlier. When you see them this morning, please thank them for their work. They did leading, and really, they, they, they pulled this whole thing together. It was all their creation, their doing, and it was a wonderful time. It's a joy to be able to serve with both of them and to see their creativity and their leadership really flourish in a season like this has been so cool. Um, and, and, you know, um, also thank you to all of you, because there's, there's a number of things about VBS that I really love, and uh, you know, two in particular stand out. One of them is I love seeing how excited the kids get. I love seeing uh, the joy they have, um, having fun, being at church and hearing the gospel. There was a very clear gospel presentation this week, and I love seeing how excited the kids get. But I also love seeing how our church comes together and serves together in something like this. So if you served this week in any capacity, if you were here this week, if you helped set up for it beforehand or tear down afterward, if you served in any way during VBS, would you please stand? I want to say thank you to all of you and to so many more who served this week so faithfully to these kids. You can have a seat. It's cool to see our church come together, and, and I want you to know, church, I am so proud and, and thrilled to be a part of a church that cares so deeply about the next generation like this. And so let's keep it going. Let's keep serving, keep investing, keep loving these kids, these students, and investing in the next generation. Um, and so thank you for how you did that this week and continue to do so. It's a real thrill for me to see. And one thing in particular that I, I thought about um, as it pertained to this morning was um, you may have seen in the video, I had to walk the plank. And um, you know, I'm happy for how much money we brought in. Um, next year, we're going to make sure the boys win. And uh, that way, I don't have to. Uh, last year, I got a pie in the face. This year, I walked the plank. Um, I 
I'm scared to see what next year would be. So we're going to make sure the boys win. But nonetheless, I, I was telling some people on Friday night, as I was getting ready to walk the plank, I was thinking, you know, every week I, I really try to live out the message that I'm preaching. And I thought, you know, this week pre presented a particular challenge to me because I knew, hey, this Sunday I'm going to be preaching on Jesus walking upon the waters. And I'm going to be saying that only Jesus can do that. So when I walk off the plank into the waters, I'd better sell the fact that I'm sinking or else I'm defeating the whole point of the message I'm preaching. If I walk off the plank and just stand there, well, my message about, hey, only Jesus can do that, would be defeated. So I tried to sell the fact that I was sinking in the waters and being eaten by a shark. You can tell how effectively I sold that. You also can see why my acting career never took off. But nonetheless, nonetheless, the point of this morning is that only Jesus can do what we see him doing in the text this morning. Only Jesus can actually walk upon the waters like we see him doing. This is a story you might have heard before. Jesus walking upon the waves, and you think, well, yeah, I, I got that story. I, I'm familiar with this one. I know this story. But I wonder, do you, do you really spend such time in the text, or do you skim right through it? Do you say, I, I got that. I know that. What's next? Jesus walks on water, check, got it. Or do you really dive in and say, what does this text really have to teach us? Because I think we will see here that perhaps there's more to this story than we initially thought. But I also think we will see in here how this story continues to have much relevance for us still today. And the reason I say that is because every person in this room knows what it is like to face storms that come our way in life. Every person in this room knows what it is like to walk through periods of struggle and darkness, moments where it feels like the storms have overtaken you, where the waters have come up to your neck and you are just trying to stay afloat without the waves crashing over your head. It feels like you're sinking into the deep of the sea. And these moments, these storms come upon every single one of us in this life. And we need to learn the lesson that the disciples learn in our text this morning. And the lesson that we need to learn is that in those times, what we most desperately need, our deepest need in those moments, our deepest comfort in those moments is the presence of our Lord Jesus with us. That's what he's teaching his disciples in this story. The storm rages around them, and what does he do? He walks upon the waves to get into the boat with them. His presence is what they need, and friends, his presence is what we need still today. When the storms rage around us, it is the presence of Jesus that is our greatest comfort and our greatest joy. And so we see this in this all-familiar story of Jesus walking upon the waters. In the context from John. The background from John helps us to see this point even clearer. Now, sometimes we skim right through this and we say, yep, check, got this story, um, what's next? But have you ever stopped to consider why does John tell us this story where he does? Why does this happen in the context of John's gospel, in the narrative we've been looking at? It's one of the reasons why I love uh, and, and committed to preaching through books of the Bible, because the context matters. Just like you wouldn't go to the library and pull a novel off the shelf, turn to a random chapter, and expect to get the full story and all the background with it, neither can we open up the Bible, turn to a random story, and expect to get all the background, all the context, and the full meaning of it that way either. So why does John insert this story where he does? Now, the, the obvious answer is this is the way it actually happened. As Pastor Dan mentioned last week, there's four gospel accounts. All four gospels tell the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Three of them, Matthew, Mark, and John, continue on right after that 
talking about how Jesus walked upon the water. This is how it actually happened. This is true history. And yet, John doesn't need to include it. He tells us at the end of the gospel that he left out a number of stories that he could have mentioned. Luke, for example, doesn't mention Jesus walking on the water. So John doesn't have to include it here. And in fact, in John's narrative that he's telling in chapter 6, this story feels almost more like an interruption than it does uh, anything else. Well, you have Jesus feeds the 5,000 plus the women and children with bread. We saw that last week. Next week, we will see how Jesus tells the crowds, guess what? You need bread. I am the bread of life. In between... Jesus walks on the water. So how does this all fit together? Why is John telling us this? And it's an important tip as you study your Bible to remember that these stories are not disconnected. I tell people often one of the, one of the driving principles in how I approach the scriptures is that the biblical authors are not stupid and they're doing what they're doing for a reason. And it's our job as the reader, as the interpreter to try to figure out why they are doing it. So why does John bring up this text where he does? I think the background helps us to better understand what the main point really is. And I think the answer is actually hidden in plain sight. We saw last week uh, the, the Jesus feeding the 5,000. And again, all four Gospels tell of that story. Three of them follow it up with Jesus walking on the water. But only one of them follows that story with Jesus talking about how he is the bread of life. John's the only one who do does that. So what does John include that the other gospel accounts do not when he's telling this familiar story? There's, there's at least two important details. First, look at verse 4 of chapter 6. John is the only one of the four gospel accounts that tells you when this actually took place. It says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So he tells you, this happened at the Passover. He tells you when it happened. John also is the only one to tell you this particular response from the people in verse 14. Look at that. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. John is the only one of the four gospels that tell you this took place at the Passover and that their response was to conclude Jesus is the prophet. In concluding that, they're drawing upon the prophecy from Deuteronomy chapter 18. And in Deuteronomy 18, it was promised that there would come to Israel a prophet greater than Moses. So in other words, John is telling you the response of the people seeing this miracle at the Passover was to conclude Jesus is the one greater than Moses. That's what they're getting at. So now some of the details begin to take on an added meaning. For example, this was happening as the signs and the wonders were multiplying in the land. We saw that in verse 2. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So just like Israel saw the signs and the wonders multiplying in the land of the Passover, so too is Israel seeing the signs and wonders multiplying now. Only this time, Jesus is doing them not to take life, but to give it. Or think about when Israel came out into the wilderness. What was needed was miraculous bread given to them by heaven to nourish them. What happens to the people here as they gather on the hillside? They are given miraculous bread from the one sent from heaven to nourish them. Or what happened after Moses leads the people out of the Exodus into, uh, and he goes up a mountain alone with God? What does Jesus do after this account? Verse 15, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. What happens with Moses and the people of Israel after in the wilderness, the people grumbled against Moses? Well, we'll see in next week's text, the people a couple of different times grumbled against Jesus. 
The conclusion of the people upon seeing the miracle from Jesus was this guy's the greater Moses that was promised. So when you think about that, think about that. What was the, what was the pinnacle of the Exodus event as Israel was led out? So, so God, the Passover, spared the firstborn son from death, and they're led out of Egypt. And what happens is Israel had to walk through the sea. So what does Jesus do here? He begins walking across the sea. See, the, the, the text is telling you Jesus is the greater Moses. He is the one that was promised, the one who is to come. He was the prophet greater than Moses. He is the king greater than David. He is, in, fa- in fact, God in the flesh. So what this text is wanting you and I to see is that Jesus is greater than we ever imagined him to be. Jesus is far more glorious than we ever thought. And his greatness, his glory, is our greatest comfort in the trials of life. The disciples need to learn this lesson. They need to see that their friend Jesus, the Messiah they are following, is greater than they ever imagined him to be. So that when he walks across the waters to be with them in the storm, they realize that his presence is the greatest comfort they could ever dream. And we need to learn that very same thing as well. And so we see then there was a storm for the disciples. There's a storm that comes upon the disciples one day. And we see this in verse 16. When evening came, the disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing, and they had rowed about three or four miles. See, the disciples were exhausted after a long day of ministry. Much like maybe some of you are exhausted after a long week of VBS. The disciples had been serving and serving and serving, pouring out, as Dan talked about last week. And then you have this day where Jesus does a lot of teaching during the day, a lot of healings, and then all of a sudden the people get hungry, and so then they're, they're feeding the crowds, and the disciples are walking all amongst these thousands thousands of people on the crowds, and they're feeding all of them, and the disciples are exhausted at the end of the day. So the sun's beginning to set, and they get into a boat. In fact, Matthew and Mark both tell us it was Jesus who made them get into the boat. Jesus comes to them and says, all right, guys, you guys are worn out. You've been serving a lot today. Get in the boat and head to the other side of the sea. I'll meet you there. Jesus makes them get in the boat and sends them on their way. So they're out across the Sea of Galilee. They made about three or four miles there, which means they would be right about to the middle of the sea. And suddenly a storm comes upon them. They hadn't been expecting it. They hadn't, uh, there, there, there was no uh, signs of warning about it. And a storm sets in. The waters become rough. So now they're halfway across the sea in the middle of a storm. Last week, Dan showed you a picture of the Sea of Galilee, and I've had the privilege of being there as well. And it's a, it's a beautiful area. In fact, it was, it was my favorite area to, to travel around when we were in Israel. And um, one of the things about the Sea of Galilee is that the sea itself is kind of, it's, it's pretty low. And around it, it's basically all surrounding it are all these hills. So it makes it beautiful to look. It's kind of like a bowl. You have the sea here and all these hills surrounding it. It makes it beautiful to look at. But it also means that from a weather pattern thing, it's, a, you know, it's, it's easy for storms to come upon it uh, with, without much warning because the winds will blow in over the hills and kind of settle on the sea. And even the most experienced of fishermen, even the most experienced of sailors, could easily be caught off guard by the winds that are coming. And so what you have is the disciples in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the night, in the middle of the storm. So let's pause here for just a moment. 
It's important to remember this story is not a parable. It is actual history. It is true narrative. This really did happen. However, I do think we can safely make some points of application to us today, learning the same lesson the disciples learn in this story. Because the 12 disciples are not the only ones who find themselves caught in the middle of storms because they are following Jesus. Remember, Matthew and Mark told us it was Jesus who made them get into the boat and sail on their way. This was not happening because they were disobedient to Jesus. In fact, their obedience to Jesus had placed them right in the middle of the storm. And that is not unfamiliar territory for Christians. To find yourselves caught up in storms that come our way in life, not because you did anything to bring it upon yourself, but maybe, in fact, because you are following Jesus. Maybe obedience has led you right into this storm. And maybe, I don't, I don't know about you, maybe you were told upon coming to Jesus, upon uh, beginning to follow Jesus, maybe you were told that if you come to Jesus, he will make your life all better and the storms will go away. And now you see storms that are coming about in your life. You didn't anticipate it. You didn't do anything to bring it about, but the storms are here. And now you're beginning to doubt all sorts of things you thought you once knew. You're starting to doubt, well, maybe this Jesus thing isn't really working then because they told me it was going to be better than this. Or maybe you begin to doubt your faith, and you think, well, then I must be the problem. But could I tell you, friend, that in fact you are actually told a half-truth? Jesus does make your life better when you follow him, but it is not by removing the storm, but by being with you in the middle of it. Storms are a normal course for the Christian, and they're a normal course for us in life. The Bible often will use the imagery of the sea in poetic ways. And when it does so, it is picturing chaos, darkness, the unknown and the uncontrolled, and the most fearful parts of our world. When the Bible talks about the sea, it's talking about it in that kind of mindset. Which is why, as an explanation, why when the book of Revelation says there will be no more sea one day, it's possible that it literally means there is no more sea. But what we can certainly conclude is that it means there will be no more uncertainty, no more unknown, no more chaos, no more darkness. All of that will be driven away. That's what we can cling to with confidence. In the new heavens and the new earth, all these things that, are, that make us uh, f- fearful here, all those things that make us nervous here, all those things that we, we can't really know what the future is going to hold here, all of that will be driven away with entirely when Jesus comes back. But not right now. So our lives right now are often filled with plenty of fear and chaos and darkness. Our lives right now are often filled with plenty of sin and shame. Our lives are often filled with plenty of uncertainty and unknown days that we face ahead. So sometimes maybe you're caught in the darkness of your own sin and your rebellion against the Lord. Sometimes maybe you're caught in the fear of your shame, knowing what you've done and knowing you don't measure up like you wish you did. And maybe you're caught in the chaos of the storms that you didn't do anything to bring upon yourself, and yet they're here nonetheless, and you feel like you're just trying to keep from sinking. Cancer, sickness, the death of a loved one, a chronic illness of body or mind, the betrayal of a friend, the loss of a job, failing a class, a wayward child, the loss of reputation with your peers, 
the crumbling of a dream, divorce, infertility, unfulfilled longings for marriage. Every single person in this room today could speak to the storms that come in our lives. Every single person knows what it is like to have the storms rage around you and within you and to cry out with the psalmist that when sorrows like sea billows roll, it feels like they're threatening to overtake us and to crush us. And maybe you're there right now. Can you relate to all that? Alistair Begg illustrates this with a humorous anecdote. There was a group of boys who went um, rowing uh, in, in England, and the boats were, you know, they, they were kind of getting a boat, they'd head out to sea, and uh, they'd try to stay out there as long as they could, and so they would try to hide from the, the person on the dock who would try to bring them back in. And so the boats were numbered one through 20. And so he tells the story of one time some, some guys got in the boat and they kind of went out sailing, and the guy on the dock said, I, I need to bring him back in. So he goes out and he calls, uh, hey, boat number nine, come in. No response. So he cries out again, even louder, boat number nine, come in. No response. He's trying to find this boat. So he looks out and he starts looking. He says, boat number six, are you having some problems? <laughs> and maybe that's what you feel like. Maybe you thought, I got into boat number nine and it's become boat number six. And I'm just trying to stay afloat, to keep from sinking into the, the depths of the sorrow and the struggles that come our way in life. And if that's you this morning, then we need to know, what, what do we do about that? What do we do about that? And that's where we need, like the disciples, the comfort that comes from Christ. We need to hear the comfort from Christ that comes. We meet him in verse 19, but it's not like you and I would initially expect him to show up. Verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Can I reread that for you in the way that we typically read this story? Here's how we typically read it. The disciples were caught in the middle of a storm. They were terrified, but then they saw Jesus, and they knew everything would be okay. It's like they look and say, oh, wait, Jesus, let me get my Jesus jersey on. Yay, go Jesus, this is awesome, we're saved. But do you notice John never tells us they were afraid of the storm? You can look again and see, John never tells you they were afraid of the storm. In fact, neither Matthew nor Mark in telling this story tell you that the disciples were afraid of the storm. The text tells you they were not afraid until they saw Jesus. It was after seeing Jesus that they became frightened. It was after seeing Jesus they became terrified. See, the disciples, among them were some experienced fishermen. They knew their way around the sea, and a storm would be nothing to, that they hadn't handled before. You know what it's like when you've faced a situation that other people might think, well, that's scary. You're like, well, it's not a big deal to me. I've, I've faced that many times before. The familiar, you can face that. When it's something entirely different, entirely new, entirely unfamiliar that you've never encountered before, that's when it can be frightening. And so too with the disciples. They had faced a storm before. They had navigated choppy waves before, but they had never before seen a man walking across the waves toward them. Mark tells us they thought it was a ghost. And you can picture this right out of a horror movie. They are looking out across the sea. It's the dead of night. The clouds are mostly blocking the moonlight uh, from view. The only noise they can hear is the howling winds. The waves are crashing around them. And you look out and you see what looks like a man beginning to walk towards your boat over the waves. And you tell yourself, well, that's impossible. No, it's surely not that. You kind of rub your eyes and think, I just need some more sleep. 
kind of look again. Ah, that certainly does look like someone walking toward us. Hey, hey, Peter, do you see that? See, that is frightening. And that's when the disciples were afraid, is when they saw Jesus. If you know nothing of that awe and that trembling before a holy God, then might I suggest to you that your God is too small and too much just like you. God is so totally other than us, so holy, so pure, so perfect. We've never encountered anyone like this before. We've never encountered someone who can walk over the waves and not sink right through them. We have never encountered anyone like this God, and fear and trembling and awe is a proper response before this God. I think C.S. Lewis captures it well in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's a famous, uh, famous moment. The Pevensey children are hearing about the great lion Aslan for the first time. And uh, they say to Mr. Beaver, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Jesus certainly isn't a safe savior, but he is a good savior. When you encounter a holy God like this, when you can walk upon the water, do things we've never experienced before, we say, uh, he's not exactly safe, but he is good. Because notice that his first words are not to invoke fear in the disciples, but to drive it out. His first words to them are comfort. He says to them in verse 20, it is I, do not be afraid. His purposes are good. He comes to them to comfort them. His statement, it is I, is a... It's a fair translation. It's, it's good and accurate. And uh, I say that because you can trust what's written here in your Bibles. However, I do think it masks something a little bit deeper. Because in the Greek, this phrase is literally this. Ego eimi, which shows up plenty of times in John's gospel, and it is literally rendered this. I am. Jesus shows up to his disciples, and literally he says this. I am. Do not be afraid. Say, so, well, why is that significant? Well, in Exodus chapter 3, God reveals himself to Moses, and God gives Moses his personal name. And God says to Moses, I am who I am. The divine name, the name of God, the name of Yahweh is I am. And Jesus applies it to himself several times in the Gospel of John. It's a theme that John picks up several times. But Jesus here, his first words to his disciples, who are terrified at seeing him walk across the waves toward them, is this, I am, don't fear. Jesus is God in the flesh. It says, then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Which seems, by the way, that it might be another miracle. All of a sudden, Jesus climbs in the boat. Guess what? Hey, they're here already. Which, you know, if we're picking miracles, sign me up for that one. It's, you know, long car ride, long plane ride, and just, hey, Jesus climbs in. We're there already. That would be nice. But it seems there's another miracle going on here. John doesn't tell us any details about it. But what we do know is that Jesus walks upon the water, meaning Jesus walks where only God walks. Job says this, that God alone tramples the waves of the sea. No human being can walk where Jesus is walking in this moment. No human being can just kind of decide one day, hey, you know what, I'm, just gonna, I'm here on the beach, and I'm just going to keep walking on the beach, and then when I get to the waves, I'm going to keep walking out among the waves, and the waves aren't going to kind of just, I'm just not going to fall right through them, but they're just going to kind of hold steady and solid underneath my feet. No human being can just decide one day I'm going to do that. Only Jesus can do that. And church, you need to know this is your God. 
This God is greater than you ever imagined him to be, you or me. This is the God who serves the multitudes bread to eat and then walks out upon the waves as if it were nothing. He treads upon the waters as if it was nothing but dust. He walks over the waves as if it was nothing but air. And the comfort is that this holy God, the great I am, draws near to drive out fear. See, the disciples, they were right to tremble when they saw him. They were right to be frightened. In fact, it it would seem absurd to not be afraid in the presence of the fear-inducing Holy One. So what is it that makes it more comforting to have him in the boat with us instead of outside there? What is it that makes it more comforting that Jesus could climb into the boat and us not be consumed? It was because this same Jesus who walked into the storm here walked into the middle of another storm later on. Not by walking upon the waters, but by walking upon the lonely road to Calvary. Because there he faced a storm that did overtake him. He compared himself to Jonah. Jonah sunk into the sea three days, and Jesus says, so too will I. He sunk into the deep. The waters overtook him. The the wrath of God poured out upon him. The waters rose above his neck. And why did he do so? He did so for you. So that he could draw near in love. He did so so that the presence of the Holy One, the presence of the great I Am, would not induce fear that would drive us away, but would induce comfort as he draws near to us, that he would come into the boat and his presence would be with us. You need to know, friends, that your God does not stay distant and far off in the storm. You have a God who enters into the middle of the storm and experiences the very worst storm that there is to offer and then climbs into the boat with you and guides you safely to shore. This is your Savior. And maybe you have not yet trusted in him as Savior. Maybe you resonate with the storms of life. You resonate with what we're talking about. You say, yeah, I feel like I'm in the middle of the open sea, and I feel like the waves are crashing in around me. I feel like that's all true of me. But your solution has been, let me just put my head down and row a little harder to try to make it to shore. And you're trying and straining and rowing and rowing and rowing, trying to make it. That, that, that comes naturally to all of us, to try to row harder to get out of the storm, to get to the shore. And we feel like if God is really there, then he must be some harsh master who's just kind of sitting by and is never pleased with us. And he's always saying, row harder, row harder, row harder. And we never make it. But you need to see in this story, Jesus does not walk along the shore calling the disciples, hey, come on, just try a little harder to reach me. Come on, you're almost there. You need to see that Jesus steps out upon the waves to come to you. He knows you can't make it to him. He knows there's no amount of rowing or effort or straining that's going to get you to shore to be with him. So he walks out upon the waves in pursuit of you. See, we are all sinners who are deserving of the same death that Jesus died We're deserving of facing the wrath of God that Jesus faced. We deserve to face that storm, and we cannot get out of it on our own. There is no amount of rowing, no amount of effort, no amount of straining that can get us out of that storm in our own strength. But here is the great news, is that Jesus does not wait for you to just reach him on the shore. He walks out to meet you and says, it is I. Don't fear. I want you to picture the scene that unfolds here. Jesus sitting atop the mountain alone. And he looks out over the Sea of Galilee, and right there in the middle of the sea, a tiny dot, it's a little boat, his disciples are on it. 
And Jesus looks out across the sea, the moon, the stars, and all of a sudden, these clouds start moving in, blocking out the light. And the wind's picking up, and the waves are getting choppy. And Jesus, looking out and seeing all this happening, what does he do? He stands up, begins to walk down the hill, and he just keeps walking out across the waves until he reaches the boat. He's in locked pursuit of his disciples and is coming to them. You need to know that there is nothing, no storm that will stop Jesus from getting to you. He is not the kind of God who sits on the mountain waiting for his disciples to make it there themselves. The great I am walks out into the sea, into the storm in pursuit of you. The love of Jesus, the greatness of Jesus is better than we ever dared to dream. The storms of life do not keep him away. The waves are no match for him. The rain and the darkness, they don't phase him. He walks right into the situations of greatest unknown and greatest uncertainties that you face today. He walks right into the most painful sorrows that are swelling within your soul. He walks right into the distresses and the trials that threaten to overtake you right this moment. He even walks into the middle of the sin and the shame that you carry around on a daily basis. And he traverses upon the seas and they bow to his command. And he greets us by reminding us who he is. I am. Don't fear. You see the pursuit of Jesus toward his disciples is the same pursuit of Jesus to you. So we see a lesson here for us. It's the lesson the disciples need to learn. Just Jesus is the creator of all things. He is the Lord of the seas. He is the bread of life. And the disciples need to know that they need him more than they need the signs. They need the bread of life more than they need the bread that came from that little boy on the shore. And most of all, they need the presence of Jesus with them. And the point of this text for us, the lesson for us, is to see that our greatest need and our greatest comfort is the presence of Jesus. Our greatest need and our greatest comfort is the presence of Jesus. We read elsewhere in Scripture of a time where Jesus woke up in the middle of the storm and spoke a word and the storm stopped immediately. We know our God has the power to stop the storms at once. And yet here in our text... The focus is not on Jesus stopping the storm, it's on him coming to be with the disciples in the middle of it. He drives out their fear, not by calming the storm, but by climbing into the boat with them. What the disciples need most, what you need most, is for Jesus to climb into the boat with you, for him to be with you. This week at VBS, you heard, we, we explored how Jesus is indeed the greatest treasure for our souls. More than anything else, Jesus is our great joy and our great treasure. But you know, there's all sorts of treasures, all sorts of joys, all sorts of happiness that are to be found in the world. And there are plenty of things that could make us glad. You see, the disciples were glad to take him into the boat. What is it that fuels the most joy, the most gladness, the most happiness in your heart? What is your greatest treasure? And this text is driving us to see that our greatest treasure is the presence of our Savior. It is Jesus who is our great joy. When he feeds the 5,000, Jesus is teaching his disciples that he will provide for them. And when he's walking upon the waters, Jesus is teaching his disciples that he will be with them. And those two promises extend to you and I today as well. 
See, when Jesus climbs into the boat with them, it doesn't mean all their problems stop. It doesn't mean all the storms cease. The Christian life is still full of trials and troubles. It is still full of storms and of sins. It is still full of pain and of problems. But through it all, we take great comfort in the fact that Jesus is with us, and he will never leave us. He tells us, do not be afraid, not because he'll make every storm stop right now, but because he will never leave us even in the midst of them. So Christian, whatever trial you are facing today, you need to know that Jesus is with you. He has not left you and he will not leave you. There is no tribulation, no trial, no distress, no storm that could ever keep Jesus from you. The waves don't stop them. He, he, him, he just walks right over them. He says next week, we'll see this in our text, that he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The God of the universe, the great I am, the prophet greater than Moses, the king greater than David, this rightful and reigning Messiah, he seeks you out in the middle of the storm to be with you, and his presence is our great joy and our great peace. And notice that he saw to it that his disciples would safely reach the shore. And he will see to it that you too safely make it home. That the storms of life will not ultimately overtake you. One day we will safely reach that golden shore. And we will see our Savior face to face. But we will know that he has been with us every step of the way. And when our boat touches that shore, our joy will be complete. And Jesus will see to it that the storms of life do not overtake even a single one of his people and that all are brought safely home. Not a single ship will sink. Not a single saint will be lost. Jesus is with you. That is the promise for the Christian. And John Bunyan illustrated this beautifully in his classic work, The Pilgrim's Progress. As Christian, the main character, nears the end of his journey through this life, he and his trusted companion, hopeful, they come to the great river that all must face. The river is death, and on the other side lies the celestial city. So they begin wading into the river, and Christian becomes afraid. He is terrified as the waters rise up uh, to his head, and he cries out, I sink in deep waters. The billows go over my head. All his waves go over me. He finds himself sinking in these waters. But hopeful cries out, be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom, and it is good. There's a kind of fear-defying confidence in the storms of life that comes from knowing that no matter how deep into the waters you might sink, even if you feel like you're hitting the bottom of this frightening foe, such as the waves are crashing in over your head, you can confess it is good. Why? Because underneath the storms of life are the loving arms of the everlasting I am who will hold you fast. Jesus will be with you and he will never let you go. That, that great modern hymn that we've sung many times here says it like this, Christ the sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm when the winds of doubt blow through me and my sails have all been torn in the suffering, in the sorrow when my sinking hopes are few I will hold fast to the anchor and it shall never be removed. And maybe you resonate with those words this morning. You say, yeah, I'm caught in the fury of the storm. Yeah, the waves are blowing over my head. Yes, my sails have been torn. Yes, I am overwhelmed by suffering and sorrow. And yes, my hopes are sinking deep into the sea. 
But friends, here is why this passage is included in John's gospel. Here is why John tells you this story. It is so that you would know that the presence of Jesus is our greatest comfort. He will provide for you. And how does he provide for you? By being with you, no matter what you face. He walks across the sea to climb into the boat with his disciples. And he too will be with all of his people who trust in him. There is an anchor for the soul that goes deeper than anything we might face. And the anchor for our souls is the presence of Jesus with us. We know that if he's in the boat with us, we will reach the golden shore safely. We will make it home one day because Jesus will see to it that we are not lost. And so in the middle of the storms, in the middle of the trials, in the middle of the sorrows, we know that the presence of Jesus is our greatest comfort, it is our greatest hope, and it is our greatest joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this hope that you give us for our souls, this rock-solid confidence in you as our anchor. We thank you for how we see in this story Jesus pursuing his disciples, and we thank you for the truth that we know you continue to pursue us today, that you continue to be with us and to hold us fast. Lord, we confess that there are seasons, and many in this room are experiencing them right at this moment, seasons of trial and storms, seasons that threaten to overtake us, to drown out our hope, to snuff out our joy. Lord, may you give us an anchor. May we cling to the anchor you have given us in this time. May Jesus become more precious to us, more dear to us. May he be a greater joy than the treasures of this world. And may his presence with us be more real to us than anything we face. Lord, I pray that Jesus, your son, would be our great treasure for your glory and for our eternal joy. We ask this in his name and for his glory. Amen.